This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. Today, we're having a chat with Andrew McFadgen, or to most that know him, Fadge. Fadge is a farmer and agricultural consultant based at Lake Agelico. He's recently come back to the family sheep and cropping farm and is using the lessons he learnt from both agronomy and corporate agriculture to make sure the farming business fits the goals and aspirations of his family. In this episode, you'll hear how Fadge has been fortunate to have many great mentors throughout his career, and now it's his turn to pay it forward, as he acts as a mentor to many other agronomists and consultants. And as you'll also find out, Fadge's passion for the future of agriculture is leading him into more leadership roles within his community and throughout the cropping industry. Fadge sat down for this long yarn with local land services mixed farming advisor, Callan Thompson, on the veranda at Wilga Park. But today we're sitting on the veranda at your family farm at Lake Kajeligo. Harvest is pretty much wrapped up and finished. How'd you go this year? Yeah, this year was probably one of the better years we've had since I've been home. I, I returned back to the family farming business at the back end of 16, which was obviously a, a pretty handy year. We'll proceeded with the last three years being quite dry with, with droughts out here, which was rather challenging. The local district went really well, actually. The yields were probably above average. There was a bit of frosting through the patch where we're sitting here today. The barley missed it, but the wheat got it. So our wheat yields we're about 2.2 tonne to the hectare, which is probably on the lower side of the district. Most of the districts probably averaged, you know, 3.1s to 3.5s. And then there's been some, you know, isolated reports of crops going 4.5 to 5.5 tonne, but very isolated reports. If you if you across the average district would be around that probably 3 to 3.5 tonne. Barley was quite promising, you know, up over into the threes. And the one thing this year, the quality was really good around around the district. This farm here on today went all APH1, which was good given the, the impact of the frost and probably a bit of a reduction in yield to what the stubbles indicated. Yeah, it's been a mixed bag throughout the area that we sort of cover in the Central West. Yeah, a lot of countries sort of had a good start, but but things sort of slowed down a bit and yields weren't as, as high as what we probably were hoping for, but still better than average. Yeah, what we found here was that the season, we got an absolute fantastic start. Um, obviously, I, I also run an ag consulting business, so the pre-emergent herbicides that went out this year probably worked as good as I've ever seen with that moisture and, and the way the season rolled in terms of allowing us to sow in our desired windows and then we'd have a, a bit of rain and a break for sowing and then a bit more rain. So we, we, we nearly had the perfect start and autumn was very kind. Early winter was quite kind. At the back end of winter, early spring, threw a few curveballs at us. We're probably 10 to 14 days late on our spring rains that really would have capped them top end yields, coupled with frost. So we yo-yoed here. We, in the space of a week, we went from, I think we got up to about 30 degrees and then we went back to a frost and then we're back up to 28 to 30 degrees and northerly winds all in the space of about 10 days. And that really 
probably hurt, you know, this this Yelkin Baguni type patch as much as anywhere. Back towards Tullabajil, there was a little bit more moisture in the system and those crops seem to be pretty resilient. And even west of town, they missed the frost. So unfortunately, yeah, the way the weather gods played us this year um, was a little bit unkind towards the end, but 100% a lot better than what we'd seen the previous <laughs> couple of years, mate. Yeah, yeah. I haven't heard too many people complaining. Mate, um, can you give me a bit of a rundown on the operation that you run here? It's a bit of an interesting one. So we're, I'm a fourth generation family farmer, but I also run an ag consulting business as well. So my father and, and mother are the primary operators on, on this farm and my brother and sister and I run the cropping side of the business. I suppose I leverage off the farm and it also aids for the consulting business because you're actually doing it on your own place as well as recommending it to your clients. I suppose with a classic family farming situation, the dad and his two brothers really built the business in the 70s, 80s and 90s as a partnership. And then as things pan out, the partnership was dissolved and dad and his two brothers went out on their own, have started business as well. And dad's two brothers have got quite successful farming businesses with their families as well. What we do on this place, it's run in a way that suits probably my mum and dad at the moment in terms of their lifestyle stage. We trade lambs in and out. We don't overgraze. We're acutely aware of making sure we've got enough feed and water in front of us, you know, for sustainability of the system, but also for the economic return on what we're trying to do. We generally crop about anywhere from a quarter to a third of the aggregation, Callan, uh, any one stage. So it's very traditional central west northern riverina farming. So three or four years of, of cropping and it's mainly a cereal-based crop, then uh, under sowing to loosen, and then the livestock side of the business takes on that, that loosen role. You know, those opportunities with the fat lamb market, when those good markets at Griffith and, and Wagga close by. So leveraging that. Dad does measure and monitor his livestock quite closely in terms of weight gains and returns. And and he's pretty, you know, pretty on the ball with that. And then obviously cropping complements that. So we try and run the system in a way that everything's complementing each other and also running it in a way that suits where they're at in their stage of life. So we're not we're not probably pushing the system as hard as others, but we're acutely aware of where we need to be in this system here for sustainability, longevity, but also business longevity for the next two, five, 10, 20 years. Yeah. Earlier today, we were talking about sort of succession and and how that works and some of the mindsets that your family have. Could you go into that? Yeah, definitely. I suppose one of the beauties that I've, I've been able to bring back home was I've been very fortunate in my working career. I Went away to boarding school and ag college at Hawkesbury. Worked for a gentleman named Chris McMaster at CRT, late 90s, early 2000s. Was mentored by the likes of Bob Freeband, Jerry Hennessy, and some of the other key personnel in the New South Wales Department of Ag as a retail agronomist. And then worked for Paspali Pearls for the last 15 years. So I've been exposed to a lot of businesses and I've seen businesses do succession planning really well. And I've seen businesses implode. One of my beliefs is that to have a falling out over a piece of dirt is, is fairly short-sighted, but that's my belief. And given my brother and sister and I uh, all have our own separate businesses, to put too much pressure on my parents at the moment with the family business would be probably pretty short-sighted. So we've taken the approach, 
let's look at the opportunities and leveraging and, and working with our skill sets. We're also very fortunate, obviously, in this business here, it's a well-established family farm. So the pressures of bank and loan repayments probably aren't on us as much as probably other businesses. So every business has their own constraints to doing business and pressures on them. So we're just trying to work through that and also our biases that we bring to the table with an open mindset without using a lot of catch craze words. But yeah, what we're trying to do is look at long-term being able to leverage off agriculture. They're not making any more land as uh, Nick Paspali once told me, and he's probably a more successful businessman than <laughs> I am. So having that as a, as part of a, a pillar of our other businesses is, is pretty important, but also to that, that whole higher level play of having a fully functional family is really important to us as well. Yeah. We were standing around with a couple of other agros a bit earlier today. And yeah, we'd all sort of mentioned that throughout our careers, we've seen family farms implode, like you say, and that bit of soil can cause a lot of antagonism in families. And it's a really great way of thinking of it, the way you've explained it. Probably the why behind that is because all of us have been away in, and worked in other businesses. We haven't always worked within this business. So it's probably given us, well, the opportunity to increase our own skill set and, and be able to create other businesses that create profitability for our in, individual family units. But it also gave us the opportunity that we weren't solely relying on this business and the challenges of, I suppose, any fourth generation business, be it farming, aquaculture or, or a small businesses, the more and more fingers you have in the pie, how do you continue to, to grow the business and, and, and keep continuity? And, and that's a real challenge. And there's no, in my opinion, there's no recipe. It's probably more having the conversation. And, and by no means have we done that brilliantly well. I think we've probably just all matured to have those conversations from being able to be out of the business and look back inwards and actually understand what we really want out of it. And also, I think one of the priorities I know my brother and sister and I have made is that our mum and dad are the priority as well. Like we don't want to see us being threats to their retirement or longevity in, in doing the, what they enjoy doing. So yeah, yeah. probably a bit of a different approach, but at this stage it's working. Yeah. Fad, when um, I first met you, I think you were probably the, the manager slash agronomist at Paspaley. What made you wanted to become an agronomist rather than just coming straight back to the farm? When I was a young fellow, I, w I always wanted to be a farmer and but my mum and dad encouraged me to try and do something else. So I was actually going to be a school teacher. So I did okay. two years. I did two years at Sydney Uni. I probably played up like a kerosene refrigerator for the first year at, at St. John's College and didn't think I learnt that much there, but actually I probably learnt a lot and made a lot of great networks, which I, I work with closely in life now. The reason for the teacher was get a teaching degree behind me, come back probably out around Lake Jellico, still work on the farm, and then if everything goes pear-shaped, become a teacher. Yep. But I wasn't really passionate about it. Yeah. And, and I, I still remember the day in the mid-90s and Dad and I were, were working up a paddock and he was on one tractor and I was on another one and I just said, look, mate, pull over. I want to tell you something. I said, going to quit Sydney Uni being a school teacher and his face kind of dropped. And then I said, but I'm going to go and do an agricultural degree out at Hawkesbury Ag College. I probably could have done it at Sydney Uni, but I've been there for two years already and I don't think I was going to get too many credit points. So I didn't <laughs> want to be at uni for six years and come out just as an undergraduate. But Hawkesbury was fantastic and it was really interesting. There was a bit of a paradigm shift for agronomists probably in the in the mid-90s. Mid there was probably more and more 
opportunities. Whereas in when I finished school in the early nineties, it wasn't talked about as much. And yeah, again, I suppose it just opened my mind up to how I could still do agriculture and, and not be too far away from the farm. So it worked well. And then obviously the Paspali opportunity was even more fantastic because I could be the agronomist and still be on a farm. And the farmer. And the farmer. Yeah. My dad came home from work one day and said to me, mate, you know, there's this job called an agronomist. They just go out and talk to farmers all day and they make 40 grand a year. And I thought, you beauty. So that, that was me from then on. <laughs> yeah, I was, it's interesting that, and, and, the, and the lure of the mobile phone and the vehicle, like, you, you know, you had me at, you had me at a low <laughs> type scenario. I suppose we're very lucky and, and I know you're working with the likes of Bob Freeman and the crew there at Coonabarra. I mean, we're very, we're very lucky with the mentorship that we had. And I think that's probably as an industry, I'm working with the Emerging Agronomist Network at the moment about how we impart mentorship to them when the paradigm shifted a little bit where there's probably not as many extension agronomists. Yeah. You know, obviously LLS have got a really good presence for the likes of yourself running around the Central West, but just that whole department being a big, big machine, what yep. it was, that they're not there now. But I think there's definitely an appetite for agronomists and consultants to make sure that the younger grads coming out nurtured and looked after like we were. It's probably giving a little bit back to industry. Yeah. Well, personally, was lucky to start off as a commercial agro in a reasonable size company that had people there to provide that sort of support. But so many people started off probably similar to you in a small family CRT and not having that large network to, to probably fall back on like the people that work for say Nutrien or, or elders. Yeah. And look, that, that's a really, a really good question. So I remember when I got the opportunity to, um, go up to Cooler and have a chat to, um, CRT at Chris McMaster and Christine White at the time. And we were grain grading here at Lake Angelica. It was about 45 degrees and I was going, I've got to get out of this joint. Yeah. So I was keen to get a job <laughs> <laughs> after grading black oats out of barley for the best part of it. I think it was only about three or four days, but it felt like three or four weeks. And I remember saying to my, my dad, I said, if there's a blonde haired, blue eyed lady on the interview panel and they offer me the job, I'll take it hands down. And I walked in and Chris White's there, blonde hair and blue eyes. So I had a little chuckle to myself. The interview went quite well and the, the rest is history. But Chris was going to work and, and she was a great mentor towards me. But unfortunately, her husband had a bit of a motorcycle, four-wheel motorbike accident, and, and she was out of action for the, probably the first six to eight months of when I moved to Cooler. And obviously coming to a new region, new agronomist in town. I still remember that first day I was in at CRT and, and I just had grower after grower asking me these questions. And I remember thinking to myself, God, have I made, made the right decision here? Yeah. But I had some wonderful mentors. I'll, I'll say a few names. Charlie Boylo, he was he was fantastic towards me. You know, Johnny Gill there at Booyamurra Station. Obviously, I've mentioned Bob Freeman a lot. Harry and Jill Powell, the Ord family. And obviously, the, the Paspali family and, and Chris McMaster and, and Jack Tyser. So that business were, were just phenomenal. And, you know, the Dave... Nivets of this world and the Sheridan family, you know, I could rattle them off till the cows come home, yep. but I just had some wonderful people that accepted that I was a grad. And, and my rule was if I didn't know it, I'd say, Callum, I don't know it. Yeah. I'd had a little notebook cause we're still writing stuff down there. We didn't have the iPads. <laughs> and then I would take these questions and go to work trying to learn it. And it was a really good way of learning. 
and it took me a couple of weeks to, to get my head around it was to say, look, I don't know this. And I think I had an expectation in my mind that the growers would expect me to know everything because I've come out of university with a degree and I, I was the agronomist. As soon as we had those conversations around, you know, they, they don't expect me to know anything, but can you go and find this and do this and let us know? That's when we started to build, you know, absolute fantastic relationships and, yep. you know, obviously the opportunity to continue to work up there with Paspali even bred that a bit further, I suppose. When we first finish uni, you've got that bit of paper and you've learnt a fair bit of science and stuff, but you definitely don't have all the answers. But you don't learn about relationships. How did you build those relationships? I think the first thing that we, we need to do is probably swallow a bit of our pride. And, and when we came through university and, or ag college, you came out and I suppose you had a bias thinking that you've got a degree, people would expect you, you need to know this, this and this. And, you know, when the rubber hits the road, the reality isn't that at all. And being in a small town pretty much by myself, I had to learn pretty quick on my feet, otherwise I would have sunk. So my method was talk about their business and start to just build that relationship, like having a bit of a chat like we are now, and then tell them a bit about my background, especially when, you know, I was growing sorghum for the first time ever. Here I'm in cool, I'm meant to be the expert on sorghum and I've never really seen it in the textbook. So you, know, you don't want to you don't want to give too much away, but you're going you you and, and then probably align yourself with some really good networks. And I was really like, like I said, that you know, a bloke like Bob Freeman is absolutely phenomenal to me and, and, and Cole Mullins and, and Jerry, Jerry Hennessy and those guys, they were just, they were just wonderful human beings and helped me out. And then I said, the growers helped me out and, and that ability to say, I don't know, but I'll find out for you. And then when you're finding out you're solving problems, but by default and cognitive development or learning, you're actually learning really quickly on your feet. Yeah. And just reaching out to people. I remember reaching out to all the key suppliers at Haynes. I had a little diary and I wrote down who they were, where they're from, and then made phone calls and just said, look, I'm the new agronomist. I'm going to need some help. And a lot of the, the reps were really, really handy as well. So it was just that whole building that network. And that just took a bit of time. And, and otherwise, yeah, it would have probably left the industry. Would have sunk in the first probably three months. All yeah. got fired. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely pass that mindset on you and I at different stages of our career have probably been in more or less opposition to each other at times. And you've always been very generous with your knowledge and, and sharing your knowledge. And I think that's something, um, most agronomists are, most agronomists forget what color shirts they've got and are, are really open to sharing. Yeah. I think that's really good within our industry. Oh, look, I, I totally agree. And I, again, I probably always had that because I had to network and reach out so much when I started, I always thought I, I want to give give back. And I always worked on the belief that if you've got a prosperous farming community, then the spoils will flow on. And even back here at Lake Angelico, like there's there's a couple of us that run around as consultants and agronomists. And really for the amount of area that's covered and to do it properly, there could be another 10 of us running around here doing it. And for me, it's about, I suppose, your clients and your growers, but also making sure you've got a, a really healthy agricultural consulting or agronomist community that are, that are helping growers and challenging, challenging the thought process. Like what we're just doing up here today 
with the summer grass opportunity at, at Wilga Park, you know, if, yeah. if I had sat on this veranda with my grandparents in the eighties and said, we're going to look at putting some subtropical grasses in here at Lake Angelica, they'd probably look at me <laughs> and frown. They still may <laughs> from above. <laughs> well, hopefully come, none of them come, will turn come, into come. weeds. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, no, yeah, well, we might have a huge um, noxious weed problem down here, but no, I think, I think we'll be pretty safe. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> One of the benefits, I think, of being an agronomist than a farmer is you learn so much from the producers you work with. What's made you a better farmer from working as an agronomist first? I think coming back to Lake Angelico, uh, probably more of an open mindset because I've been lucky enough to be exposed to a lot of ideas and opportunities. When I was running the cropping program at Currajong Park, the ability to look outside your business and critique what you're doing because you're doing that in other businesses allows you to go, well, that didn't work. I'm not going to go and do that again critically reflect on yourself, I think, because we do that as agronomists and consultants. Yeah. Also too, I think the one, one thing we often like in agronomy a little bit like a GP because you're, you're always working with problems coming at you from the farm gate level, but to get a lot of these answers, you've got to really leverage off the experts in the industry. You know, for example, you know, the Steve Simpendorfers of this world, if you've got yep. disease issues. So you're kind of working as a bit of a conduit between that. Also having those type of experts to network with them to say, I've got this problem at farm gate level. What do you think? And then you've got confidence of trying it as well. Yep. So it's a, it does probably allow you to look at things a little bit differently to a degree. It also allows you to test a lot of your theories and some of them work and some of them just don't work. Like I know when I first started at Courage on Park, coming out of retail agronomy and science, you know, I used to get absolutely, if anyone, the stock on farming country, like the sky would fall in and like I'd be an absolute right pain in the bum. That all went out the window, right? Yeah. <laughs> because we started to work out that there wasn't the compaction there. The livestock was a pretty important part of the business. And now with whole integrated weed management scenarios, that thought process is really, really challenged, especially in a mixed farming type yeah. business. So again, sometimes when the rubber hits the road and, and the reality is when theory theory meets practice and the practical side usually wins out. And I think that working at the farm gate level and also as a, an agronomist consultant, that is a, a pretty cool place to play. Yeah. You, you soon, your ideas still get blown up pretty quick, eh? <laughs> <laughs> My time as a commercial agronomist, I was never one for uh, mixing broadleafs and grasses when producers want to do forage crops. It's always monocultures because that's what's easy to spray. And this year found myself sowing... Uh, Oats with forage brassica because pre-COVID I was thinking I was going to be away a lot and was a bit worried about safety. So that on-farm experience really does change some of those rules that we give ourselves, I guess. Oh, look, look, I 100% agree. And with the experience I had working at Courageong Park was just the amount of hectares you had to get over it. And, and I remember Bob Freeband once saying to me when I took the role on, I said, oh, any advice, Bob? And he said, just get your timing right. And yeah. he was 100% on the money. I, I used to work on the theory up there. If I, I lost a day, I'd lose a week. If I lost a week, I'd lose a month. Lost a month, the year's shot. Yep. So practicalities and timing, well, like timing was my number one key and I just had to get there. So as retail agro, high advocate of higher water rates and, and everything like that. Yep. 
as an on-farm agronomist, I'd have no dramas with running glyphosate at about 35, 40 litres per hectare, as long as I was yeah. going to get the job done. But it, it is, it's, you always bring a bias in and then you're constrained by what you can actually do. And it was a little bit what I was saying about the thought process on the, on the farm here and, and the succession planning and, and, and how every business is so different and there isn't a one size fits all recipe, but there's one common denominator, I reckon, to make it work. And that's that whole communication and understanding other people's perspective. And, and I think as an agricultural industry, we're getting better at that, but I think we do the hard system stuff really well and we're still probably a little bit immature on the softer system stuff. Yeah. And, but it's the softer system stuff that drives the organization. Like I know at GRDC level, I was lucky enough to sit on the Northern panel for five years and we used to have some wonderful discussions around hard science and I'd always pop up and I had another couple of colleagues and one, one in particular, Roy Hamilton, we would always talk about the people's mental health and wellbeing on the farm because it's no point having the all the shiny paint in the world, but the black that's sitting in it isn't operating at optimum level. Yeah. So, and again, I, I think as an industry, we're getting better at that. Where all that lands, especially now, post-COVID, post-droughts, or hopefully post-COVID, post-droughts and, and, and leading into 2021, I think those conversations are going to be more important than ever. We've mentioned working for Paspaleys at Carajong Park. And from the outside looking in, that looked like a very progressive company that were willing to try new things. And you guys had a crack at dry land cotton. And you've also, you and I have been speaking on occasion about some of the northern properties and some of the production systems there. What was it like working in such a progressive situation where you could just go and try stuff? I remember when I, I was lucky enough to land the job, I... I remember pinching myself going, how, how did I do this? And, 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 I, and it was a fantastic opportunity. And I said to them when I moved on, and I haven't really moved on, I'm still doing some consulting work back to them. I remember talking to the family and, and the general manager about it. Without the bigger corporate type farms in Australian agriculture, a, a person like me would have been lost to ag because the millennium drought down here was pretty tough, right? And there would have been no real opportunities in ag other than, you know, the big corporate farms that probably could leverage other things they do off that. Yeah. yeah, it was really good. They were and are fantastic people. I couldn't speak highly enough of them. We were given opportunities to explore new farming practices, new crops, as long as we had good business plans. So it actually gave me some really good rules to learn by. We had good support around us, like our accountants understood agriculture, the company and the board understood what we do, and they allowed us to work pretty autonomously as well. One of the things that I look back at my time there was the people that worked with me have all gone on and been quite successful in their own right, which is probably a testament to the culture of Paspali at the time we were there and what we were allowed to do. They taught me a lot about good rules to do business and a lot, probably a lot more than what I would have learned on a family farm in terms of the human resources, the work health and safety, and, and a lot of things that are coming to the forefront and center of a lot of businesses now. And just that rigor around when making a decision, going through the process from little things from just repairing budgets or looking at new crop opportunities and trying to 
eliminate and have a discussion around a lot of the pros and cons before it was actually set in motion. So I found the business to be very forward thinking, but also very considered, if you could sum it up in a, yeah, yep. in a way. It was busy, like summer and winter crop and a lot of moving parts and a lot of moving people. You were, you were busy. Yeah. We worked long hours. We worked hard, but we always celebrated the results, which was really important. And I think, I think businesses a little bit these days have probably lost that art of celebrating wins. And I think we need to kind of bring, bring that back a little bit in society. But no, it was just, look, I look back and it was just, it was a wonderful time in my life and it was a fantastic opportunity and you know, very, very fortunate to probably be in the right place at the right time. Because when, when I landed that job, I remember thinking to myself, I've probably got a job here that uh, I probably thought I might have had after 10 years experience, not two and a half. And again, I think that came back to the people that I had around me and then the people I had, I was working with in that business. Obviously taught me a lot about the, the hard systems agriculture, but also taught me a lot about people. And I was very, I suppose very young and, and, and naive to people management when I first started there and understanding where people were coming from. I think I got better at it as I got into the business more and more and worked with more and more people and different personality types. I, and I think that's really helped me in the consulting gig because you working with different personalities as clients. Yeah. That was something that I never thought I would have taken out of that role when I first thought about it because I was just thinking about growing crops, I suppose. Yeah. But the recipe for the crops were quite easy. The people that were working with you was where not so much challenges arose, but where the opportunities were to get the best out of them and try to take that glass half full approach. And we had, we had a lot of fun while we we're doing it as well. Yeah. Again, that people management isn't something that you learn it uni, it's not something that you get with your bit of paper. It's all stuff that you've got to pick up as you go. Oh, look, and I think you learn a lot from your mistakes. I still remember one day and I've reflect back on it a lot of, there was a guy I was working with and, you know, he's probably one of my most experienced operators. And there was a young guy that just started and it had been hot and long and had been cleaning out silos. And, you know, I didn't even think twice. I said to the young guy, I said, you go and jump on the tractor today and go and do this. And we'll go and do this other job cleaning out silos. And the fellow that, that I picked to go and clean the silos out wasn't real happy. Explained why to me rather <laughs> bruntly. <laughs> I could imagine. It was a good life lesson. I think you've just probably got to take that bit of an open perspective. You know, this bloke had been here for two minutes and sitting on the air-conditioned cab, I'd been here for the best part of 10 years and yeah. been doing all the heavy lifting labour type jobs. Yeah. Didn't think that was quite right. Yep. Flip my management strategy that afternoon about trying to equal things out. And you don't know what you don't know, right? It was a good learning opportunity. And I think that sometimes you, you learn so much more from your mistakes than when you're having a fair weather sailing moment. Yeah. I reckon. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time. <laughs>